Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's Life Ministry. We're sharing the stories and insights of real people living out God's love for the people He's created. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Stephanie Jabauer, along with my co-host, Deaconess Dr. Tiffany Manor, and our special guest, the Reverend Dr. Kevin Voss. Among many other things, Dr. Voss is also professor at Concordia University, Wisconsin, and the director of the Concordia Center for Bioethics. You know, Dr. Voss and Tiffany, my parents always taught me that learning is lifelong and that being a student continues well beyond your school years. And so that's just what Tiffany and I are going to be doing today, Dr. Voss, if that's all right with you. We are going to take this opportunity to be students once again to sit at your feet and to learn from your years of experience in the field and also in the classroom. Listeners, this episode is part of an ongoing series called The Floor is Yours. So we essentially invite a super duper smart guest on. We give them the microphone and we let them take the floor. So Dr. Voss, welcome. Would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure, happy to. I don't know if I can live up to all those qualifications that you gave me, but I'll try to do some good things. So my name's Kevin Voss. I'm director of the Concordia Center for Bioethics, which you heard. I'm also a full professor of philosophy here at Concordia University. I've been here since 2003, so I'm in my 20th year here now. And I'm a veterinarian. I practiced in northern Wisconsin in a little town called Bondwell for 14 years. And unfortunately, the Lord saw a different future for me. I had to retire from practice mainly due to allergies and asthma and also a desire to serve the Lord in the ministry. And at the urging of my pastor, I checked out the seminaries and found out that over half the classes were actually second career men. So I ended up selling my share of the practice. My family and I moved down to St. Louis in 1995 and I attended seminary, Concordia Seminary St. Louis for four years. And then as I was nearing the end of that time, that one particular, one professor in specifically, uh, Robert Weiss, who is the bioethics director there at the seminary, encouraged me to think about teaching bioethics. And so I found out through him that St. Louis University had a PhD program in healthcare ethics. So long story short, I ended up starting on, in that program in 2000 and uh, ended up finally getting my PhD in 2012. <laughs> oh, it takes so it took me about yeah. 10 years to write my dissertation. And largely it's because Concordia found out about me once I was ABD, all but dissertation, and came on board in 2003 here at Concordia. And then finally had to try to finish my dissertation while I was working full time, but finally did finish that up. So I'm also an ordained Lutheran pastor, as well as I also have a an added certification from the Academy of Christian Apologetics evangelism and human rights in Strasbourg under the direction of Dr. John Warwick Montgomery. Yeah. And I actually have a son who's in the army. He's a graduate of CUW oh. in 2008, and he's in the EOD Corps. I don't know if you know what that stands no, for. what is that? Explosive Ordnance Disposal. Oh, so oh he my. defuses bombs. <laughs> That's what my son Ryan does. Wow. So he's stationed right now in Killeen, Texas. And then my daughter who's a graduate of Wash U in St. Louis, actually. And then she went to Ohio State Medical School. So she's a surgeon, a cancer surgeon, down at Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa. Wow. 
And, and my wife worked at Kohl's. She's retired from Kohl's now, so she's happily retired. And so she goes down to Tampa and my daughter calls to help take care of our new grandson, Deacon, who's a little bit over a year old. I saw pictures. He's adorable. And and I saw video, right? He he was trying to walk. Trying to walk. Actually run. run. He was trying to run. Yeah. So we actually have to fly down there at the end of this week. And see him running for the first time. Oh, wonderful. Oh, yeah. Let's skip the walking and just start running, huh? Yeah, that, that's basically what he did. Yeah. Uh, he maybe walked for two weeks and then he went to running. <laughs> well, Dr. Voss, you are paving the way for quite a legacy. And we, Tiffany and I are here sitting with a legend and we thank you for giving us your time today. Can we maybe start out by just defining what bioethics is? And since this is what you've spent the past, you know, 20 years or so of your professional time focusing on, how do you define it and specifically the work that you do for the Concordia Center for Bioethics? Yeah, the Concordia Center for Bioethics was started in the late 1990s by Dr. Richard Iyer. It was called the Concordia Bioethics Institute at that time. And we actually changed names a few years ago for two reasons. One is the Concordia Bible Institute, which was also CBI, <laughs> hoped that they could have exclusive access to those abbreviations, CBI. And we were CBI too. And plus, the center is now focusing on more in academic programs. So we, have, we actually offer two academic programs right now, a bioethics minor for undergraduate students who can for example, in natural sciences or in exercise physiology, those sorts of undergraduate majors, they can actually do, and philosophy as well, they can do a bioethics minor. And so we have currently seven students uh, as part of the bioethics minor. And then we offer a graduate certificate in bioethics, which consists of four courses taught by four different professors, and it's done through distance learning. So anyone, any part of the world can enroll in the program. And so it's not a full minor, or I should say it's not a full master's degree in bioethics, but then it doesn't cost as much as a master's either, nor does it take as much time. So it's four courses. You can get it done in one year. And so it just gives you an added qualification for those who are interested to improve higher ability or just general interests. You know, we've had, for example, one deaconess who went through the program. She's in the middle of it right now. And she's just basically taking it, I think, for general interest. She just wants to learn more about bioethics. So bioethics, if you don't know, is simply the study of ethical issues in biology and healthcare. And it was actually started really in the 1970s is when it came into full full force as its own field. It's not really a discipline, you know, like philosophy or theology. It's a field because it incorporates many disciplines like philosophy, theology, medicine, law, in fact, we have a lot of law and bioethics. And so we just study the ethical issues in biology and healthcare. It's just that the words biology and ethics squished together into one word, bioethics. And so it really came into being really for two reasons. One is in vitro fertilization, which in 1978, very first IVF baby was born, Louise Brown in England, called a test tube baby euphemistically at that time, although it's not really, she's not born in test tube or anything (laughs) like that, but fertilized in a dish outside of the woman's body. In vitro actually is two Latin words meaning in glass. So it's a fertilization in glass. 
And then the other thing that helped push bioethics along was end-of-life issues. Feeding tubes and ventilators came into common use at that time. And so people had questions about, you know, do I want to remain connected to a feeding tube and ventilator for my whole life when I might be, for example, in a persistent vegetative state or a coma or even brain dead, which they really didn't have adequately defined until the 60s or 70s. So those are really the two areas that pushed bioethics along. But it addresses many issues. It's all life issues, really. Life issues from even before conception to conception to gestation to middle life, end of life. Any issue that you can think of, like gene editing is a big issue right now. Mm -hmm. Physician-assisted suicide. Even something as futuristic as transhumanism. The idea that we can actually use science and technology to create turn ourselves into a new species called a post-human. And uh, euthanasia, uh, when do we properly withhold or withdraw treatments at life's end, advanced directives, and then medical ethics, just general medical ethics issues like informed consent and confidentiality, all those sorts of issues, pandemic bioethics, all those sorts of things, almost anything you can think of that has to do with life that we study at the Bioethics Center and yes. teach. I'm so glad that Concordia University of Wisconsin had the foresight and, and Dr. Iris, who's been formative in my formation and development as a, a deaconess, has worked, but for us to have premier Lutheran institution like Concordia University of Wisconsin focus on bioethics. And of course, our seminaries have as well, but you know, our baptismal identity, our Lutheran identity has got to inform our approach to all of these issues in life. And so this is a place where it can be studied, taught our, you know, future church workers, but the Christ-centered focus that we can have. And I constantly am praying that we'll actually have more Lutheran bioethicists. Me too. Yeah, more people taking the certificate course and maybe advanced studies and graduate degrees because our world needs Christians to be thinking academically about these topics and, and focus. So, right. Thank because you. if you don't, if you don't have people who have studied the issue, and don't know the theology and the philosophy, then secular world attitudes will just take over because there's no pushback. You yeah. know, there has to be rational pushback against some of these issues to help people think that, well, maybe physician-assisted suicide isn't the right way to go. You know, at least yeah. if we can cause some people to wonder and maybe have some influence as to, you know, when laws are written, things like that, and then through your efforts as well that maybe we can help turn the tide. I mean, look at the abortion issue. Who would have dreamed even five years ago that Roe v. Wade would be overturned? Right. That's just such a shock. And now all of a sudden Roe v. Wade is overturned. And so now it's a new ball game. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean we can let up because it's just different now. Yeah. Now we have to focus on the state area, state level mm -hmm. rather than the national level. But now the big issue in bioethics is the abortion pill as well. Yeah. And that's getting to be ironically pushed to, into the national stage now and probably might go to the Supreme Court. So that'll be interesting too. Always, there's always some kind of issue to talk about, oh. Stephanie. It just never ends. Yeah, well... That's one great thing about bioethics. Absolutely. I mean, we could... There are so many spinoff episodes that we could do from this. As I'm listening to you talk, it, and thank you for explaining it that way too, that rather than a discipline, it's a field because it involves multiple disciplines, really. And I honestly hadn't thought of it that way, but you're right. There's a, there's legal aspects. There's theological aspects. There are obviously scientific and biological aspects as well. And therefore, it takes a very special person like yourself to be able to kind of 
put all of these things together, a Rubik's Cube, and make them work, you know, especially for the Christian. This is weightier because we also have the the rule, the norm of Scripture to inform us. Well, you know, Dr. Voss, I don't know if you knew this about myself, but I went to Concordia, Wisconsin with a study in sonography, and that was at the very beginning when the ultrasound program was incorporated into the CUW offerings. And so... What year? 2008-2012. Oh, then I was around during that time then. Yes. I don't even know if you knew who I was. Maybe you didn't. Unfortunately, not at that time, but of course, after and when I was at the seminary as well. But... These issues that you've already brought up are of special interest to me. In sonography, my focus has been obstetrics and gynecology. And beginning of life, even preconception, is especially interesting to me. And so, as we had said, it's impossible to touch on everything, but I hope to focus today on beginning of life bioethical issues. And as far as that arena goes, can you just, you know, kind of lay the foundation too of what the Lutheran difference would be in approaching these beginning of life issues? Yeah, and that's the distinctiveness of the Concordia Center for Bioethics is that we provide Lutheran Christian perspectives on all these issues. There are lots of bioethics centers across the country. In fact, there's another one here in town at the Medical College of Wisconsin. They offer a, they have a bioethics center, but theirs is an entirely secular program. And so we allow, at least allow religion into the discussion. And we implement it into every issue that we discuss. We don't force anyone to believe what we believe, you know, so you don't have to be LCMS to enter into our bioethics certificate program, for example. In fact, we've had students there who aren't necessarily even Christians but they just want to know the theological perspectives on these issues. And that's what we do. And for example, our perspective is differ, differing from the Catholic perspective is that, yeah, we're certainly both Christians, but our source of authority is different. Our source of authority, the highest source of authority is the Bible. This is scriptures. We always turn to that first. Versus other Christians perhaps might just include the Bible as one of their sources of authority. They might include like, for example, the Roman Catholic tradition would incorporate natural law, human reason, former papal pronouncements, all those sorts of things into their decision-making where the Bible is just one of their sources of authority. But for us, it's, it's the Bible is the top. Now, we also use reason. We use philosophical principles. We use natural law as well, but they're secondary. So that's really the main difference there. So in our general, the general attitude, I think the LCMS has taken toward biotechnologies in general, which I happen to agree with, is that we're not opposed to biotechnology as long as it's used within proper bounds. But yeah, that's generally has been our attitude. We're not anti-technology, as some people think, but all technology has to be used wisely, like gene editing, for example, which many compare to atomic energy today. That's how powerful it is. Wow. I would love to have a conversation about that, too. But I I would have you know that I, just for fun, because I'm a complete nerd, watched some of the presentations on YouTube that you've given through Lutherans for Life. And you essentially broke categories up into three different categories or ways that other people would approach bioethics that Lutherans would not. 
And so you mentioned the idea of personal autonomy or that I have the right to say what happens to my own body. You mentioned a utilitarian approach, which is the good outcomes are the greatest happiness for the greatest number is what you had mentioned. And then complete ethical relativism, which everything is subjective, whereas Christians and particularly Lutheran Christians would have a different ethic altogether, which would be that my body has been made by our creator. The father Mm -hmm. has been redeemed by the son and sanctified by the spirit. Therefore, we can't say, well, my own personal body, I can do whatever I want with it. We also can't say utilitarians, whatever's best for the greatest good, well, it Mm -hmm. hurts others. We also can't say, well, anything goes because, well, like you mentioned, our ultimate authority is scripture alone and Christ alone. And so you had mentioned that we are driven by this blueprint God's plan. And so therefore, we approach these issues based on God's goal or his ultimate telos for the universe, for humankind, our duty to our neighbor and virtue. And so I was wondering maybe if you could talk about that too. Yeah, that's for sure. It is different for many people. And you're right about autonomy. Autonomy is the kind of the default mode principle today. We call it the prima facie principle in healthcare which is different than the way healthcare used to be. Before, I would say the 19, mid-1950s or even 1960, the doctor was in charge. It was really a paternalistic system. And paternalism actually comes from the Latin word pater, which means father. So it's fatherism. And what the doctor said, that those were the orders. And the nurses and the patients had to do it. In fact, some hospitals had orderlies in them, which are basically guys, linebackers dressed up with white suits that would actually enforce the doctor's orders on patients by force, by physical force. And then mid-1960s, then autonomy, patient autonomy came to be dominant. So today, that's the dominant principle in healthcare. In fact, many physicians lament that today, that they're no longer in control of medicine and that patients make sometimes unwise decisions contrary to medical evidence, contrary to their experience. And so they're sad about that. But that's really, if you're an adult decisional patient today, and court rulings have affirmed this, that an adult decisional patient has a right to refuse any treatment, even one that might save the patient's life. So yeah, that's definitely the the d- default mode principle today. And the way Lutherans typically look at ethics is this, and I have to actually credit Dr. Iyer for this in his book, Holy People, Holy Lives, where in our first couple of weeks in all of our bioethics courses, we talk about ethical theories and ethical principles. So there are four principles of biomedical ethics, which I'm sure, Stephanie, you know, the autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. Autonomy, we already talked about. Beneficence is the idea that healthcare professionals ought to do good for their patients. Non-maleficence simply means above all, do no harm, which is found in the Hippocratic Oath. The patient shouldn't be worse off from the treatment when she, he or she leaves a doctor's office than when they first went in. Now, they might be more ill because of their illness, but not whatever the physician does should not make them worse. And then justice, to be fair to everyone. So those are the four main principles of biomedical ethics. But then we also talk about ethical theories, which are really 
frameworks or foundations for ethics. And each of us have a framework, even though we don't realize it. And so I actually ask my students after I describe them, which framework do you adhere to? And one of them is utilitarianism. In fact, medicine by its very nature today is very utilitarian. Utilitarianism comes from the British English word utility, which means usefulness. So the idea is that I'm going to pick whatever action results in the greatest good or the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And unfortunately, with that theory, even though it sounds great, that means any action that typically would be considered to be morally reprehensible could be justified if you think more people are happier at the end. Classic example, bioethicists love to use Nazi Germany because they're an example of when ethical theories and principles were set aside. Probably no time in history has been worse than that. And so, for example, Hitler, when he decided to ethnic cleanse the Jews from his country, thought he was doing good. He thought that the German people would be better off, that the genetic pool would be better off if we would rid the world of these defective genes as he saw them. And he also, before even World War II, had uh, people with mental disabilities and physical disabilities euthanized before World War II. So that's all part of his eugenics mentality. So that's a problem with utilitarianism is that it focuses on consequences and any act can be justified if you think it results in the greatest good for the greatest number. Now, on the contrary, and Christian ethics focuses on three ethical theories, and Dr. Iyer set this up really nicely. Lutheran ethics is, and Christian ethics is defined by law and gospel, the two greatest teachings in the Bible. So it's informed by both law and gospel. So there certainly is law in the Bible. We can't ignore that. The Ten Commandments, classic example. So Christian ethics based on the law is what we call deontological. That means duty ethics, that we do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. But Christian ethics, according to the law, is also what we call teleological. Telos telos is the Greek word meaning goal or purpose. And the law is always a threat. So what purpose or future do we have to look forward under the law? Judgment. Now, that's not always a bad thing. Sometimes if someone is contemplating an action, uh, let's say having sex outside of marriage, and they have a twinge of conscience that says, well, I might have to give an answer to God someday for me doing this, and it prevents them from doing that, you know, that might be a good thing. But fortunately, Christian ethics is also informed by a stronger, a more powerful and significant force, and that's the gospel. In fact, at its core, Christian ethics is gospel-based, the good news of what God has done for us through Christ. So from the gospel perspective, Christian ethics is virtue-based. That And St. Paul wrote a lot about virtue, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he instills in us the desire to do the right thing. Not that we have to do the right thing, that's the law, but we want to do the right thing out of love for God and love for our neighbor. And Christian ethics based on the gospel is also teleological as well, but in a good sense, because for teleology, according to the gospel, is that We have a short-term purpose here on earth to serve God and our neighbor, but also long-term eternal life in heaven, you know, the beatific vision as St. Augustine talked about. So Christian ethics is actually, I think, incorporates features of three ethical theories, deontology, teleology, virtue ethics. So those three kind of come together under the banners of law and gospel. That really makes Christian ethics unique. Thank you for that. 
And so launching off of what you had just said, which you had said that that's laid out by Dr. Iyer in his book, Holy People, Holy Lives. Is that correct? It might be out of print, though. But actually, I'm going to try to I have a sabbatical to work on a book of my own this fall. So Lord willing, that'll come together. And so I'm going to try to get Dr. Iyer's permission to maybe use parts of his book in my new one. And so we'll see how that goes. I'm sure going to reference him, you know, quite often in that new book. Wonderful. Well, I can't wait and for another your book. book. Yeah, another book, too, that's out there right now is Gilbert Mylander's Bioethics of Primer for Christians, which I require in my bioethics classes. It's just in his fourth edition now. So he just updated it and it's dated 2020, although I think it just came out about a year ago. So I use that as well. I use it. I had that in seminary too as part of my bioethics class there. Although it wasn't the first edition then. <laughs> That's how long ago. <laughs> now, Dr. Voss, turning towards issues at hand here with reproductive technologies and beginning of life issues. You had laid out the foundational theories for bioethics according to the Christian standards. Before we dive into some of the more nuanced conversation, what are some at-ground-level truths that we need to have or agree upon before we start getting into the specifics like in vitro fertilization, fetal stem line experimentation, contraception. Yeah, well, one thing that comes to my mind is that you'd already mentioned, Stephanie, is the notion from 1 Corinthians, we are not our own. We're bought with a price. So we are created in God's image. He has redeemed us, and we're also temples of the Holy Spirit. So we're not our own three different ways, actually, when you think about it. And so anything that we do that involves our bodies, God gifts of our bodies and our very lives, we have to take that into consideration. And so that's a huge thing. Another thing that needs to be kept in mind, too, is God's institution of marriage, that there, when God instituted marriage in Genesis, that there are two purposes, if you will, for marriages and marriage. We call it the unitive or one flesh union purpose of marriage and then the procreative purpose. And so in, in healthy marriages, both of those aspects are there. So some would say contraception emphasizes the unitive aspect of marriage at the expense of the procreative. And in vitro fertilization, if used inappropriately, might emphasize the procreative aspect of marriage at the expense of the unitive, especially when donor gametes or surrogate mothers are involved. So those are some core concepts that have to be kept in mind. And another thing is motive. Motive is key. In fact, Dr. Robert Fleischman of Christian Life Resources wrote an excellent book about contraception. And he thought in that book, he expresses that in his notion, the use of contraception, the main issue is motive. Why are you doing it? Why are you using contraception? Are you using contraception for self-centered reasons? Maybe to buy another car or a bigger house, further your career, or is it really your motive to glorify God in this institution of marriage and maybe provide a better home environment for your future children. So that's key for all those issues. And in vitro fertilization, the same thing. Am I doing this to keep up with the Joneses? They have five kids. We can't have any. Oh, I always see their kids running around and, you know, we can't maybe interact with them like we would like to. And we just, ah, everyone else in their neighborhood has children. We need to have children. Where children then in that instance are turned into things, into objects. They're kind of tools to get what we want, maybe as we envision happiness. Or some pastors have even told me, 
that a couple shows up in their office where maybe their marriage is in trouble. And then the wife might say something like, oh, pastor, I know we can save our marriage if we could just have children. You know, that's a problem with motive because as you all know, those are your parents, that children are stressful on a marriage. Yes, they're certainly blessings and wouldn't change a thing, but they take a lot of work a lot of financial resources, and they are stressful. So if a marriage isn't solid before children come along, then sometimes it actually impacts that marriage even more negatively than it had been before. So those are the three things that I can think of that are important. God's, God's vision of what marriage ought to be because he created it after all, and then motive is important, and that our bodies are not our own. So those are probably three ground rule principles, I would say, that apply to any kind of beginning of life, reproductive type technology. And probably wrapped into the first one that we're not our own, that we're our bodies are made by God when life actually begins, when human life begins. And I'll let you answer that. But how would we define the beginning of life? Well, I know there's been attempts to redefine the term fertilization. <laughs> And Donna Harrison is good at elaborating on that. And conscious and conception, in mm -hmm. fact, although we insist on still using the contraception and the word conception in Senate documents because it's in the Bible of Psalm 51. So I think for me, this is just for me, and it's odd, I think, that some people don't look toward this passage, but there are a lot of passages that talk about the beginning of life in the Bible, even about you know how God cares us even before we're born. Jeremiah 1.5, for example. And uh, Psalm 139, I remember hearing a sermon preach on Psalm 139, which many pastors sadly hesitate to do because they don't want to antagonize members of their congregation who might have had abortions. And, and there's a significant number of women statistically who have gotten abortions. I think you were saying 40% the other day or it's, someone was saying something um, like that. Estimates. Estimate, it's hard. Yeah. It's, that it's might really be a hard. High, but I don't think it's a bad assumption yeah. that I always say is it. If you're in a group of 10 people that mm. someone has been impacted by abortion decision, whether yeah. it's a, a woman who's had an abortion or contributed to an abortion decision of a friend or a loved mm. or a man who's you know been a part of an abortion decision. So yeah, it, it, it's it, not just women who are involved, yeah. obviously it's men too. It's a whole lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And I know statistically that one out of every five pregnancies ends up in an abortion. And that's based on statistics for a long time now. and. So those are serious issues. But for me, uh, of course, the Bible is ultimate authority. I like Psalm 51.5. You know, when King David is lamenting over a sin of, of adultery and murder. And he says, I was born in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And the, the Hebrew there is quite interesting where he says, there is really, I don't think, a, a word in Hebrew for conceive. But it, he says, in sin did my mother become hot with me. And so being a veterinarian, of course, the term that we use to describe animals who are ready to be bred is to come into heat. And they use the same terminology back in the Old Testament days. And David, as you know, was a shepherd before he became king. And so he's used to these terms. And he used crass terminology and purpose to describe not only his birth, which he describes as being writhed out, but also being conceived, his mother coming in heat with him. And so I think 
that taking that passage as well as uh, Jeremiah 1 5 and Psalm 139 and others, that God cares for us from conception on, that we're created in God's image from conception. I think that's really the only time, not only biblically, but scientifically, that we can pinpoint a new human being comes into existence. So just to be crystal clear, the way that we would define the beginning of life is at fertilization, or some people would say conception. And you had mentioned as Dr. Donna Harrison, who we've had on as a guest before, defines it really well as that moment where sperm and egg are fused together. And that is a sperm egg fusion. Yes. Yes. Sperm egg fusion in which there is a single cell because now sperm and egg have combined. And then from there, it just continues to replicate. Just differentiates and into a human being through the use of stem cells and all that. And that's another issue. (laughs) So, so life begins right right then. Sperm right. fusion, that is right. conception, that is fertilization. Yeah. So that's when we consider that Just a maturation process after that point. Yep. Right. It's clear that Christians and pro-life atheists and secular pro-life people involved need to maintain the advocacy that we need to continue informing our representatives at the state level, the federal level making our voices heard mm-hmm. on this. Of course, we want all abortion to end. We'll take restrictions in the meantime as we keep working, those so that abortion can be unthinkable. And for us as Lutherans, as we're focused on Christ, we want to care for these people. We want to share Christ's love and mercy with them when they're unexpectedly pregnant. We want to teach about the proper involvement of the family and marriage. There's a lot for us to be focused on that like Professor Weiss used yeah. to say, I'm not going to tell people what to do, but I'm going to structure their thinking. Oh, yes. He always says that. Yeah. And so I that's a, kind of what you were expressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, that's our role. Yeah, that's our role. And there's options. Um, so some people might be more in- inclined towards the, that public advocacy and the letter writing campaigns or going and meeting with their legislators to put pressure on the FDA. There might be other people who are more willing to serve as foster parents and others who want to serve in pregnant centers, there's a place for everyone, no matter what your inclination is, but everyone is needed. Yeah. So we're thankful for all of the Lutherans and our brothers and sisters in Christ and in other church bodies where we stand shoulder to shoulder to teach. Like you've been teaching us, Dr. Voss. So thanks for taking up these challenging topics with us. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Dr. Voss, for taking time to be with us, to teach us, and to remind us of what's important, and that is listening to the words of our Lord in Scripture. And also we encourage our listeners who, you know, follow up questions or thoughts that have been provoked by our conversation today to speak with your pastor that is within your local church who have been given to you by our Lord to to walk with you through these things in, in your life um, and in your specific circumstances. And I want to thank our listeners, too, for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and don't forget to click the follower subscribe button so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. New episodes drop twice each month. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. Do you have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that introduces listeners to life issues by introducing them to friends who stand for life.